Good morning, church family. It is great to be with you this morning. Thank you very much for that greeting. I hope you're awake on this holiday weekend, and uh, some of you getting tomorrow. Uh, hope hope you spend it safe and with family and enjoy the break or get something done. But uh, really glad that you came to be a part of this time of worship together and the preaching of God's word. I've always called this holiday Laborless Day rather than Labor Day <laughs> because you're not supposed to work, right? Yeah, that's right. So you're supposed to take off from work. That's how we're honoring the workforce. Yeah, exactly. So uh, I'm looking forward to having a Laborless Day tomorrow. Yes, absolutely. So we're going to talk this morning, uh, continue this series of messages that uh, Pastor Brandon's been leading us in on called Questions. And this morning we're going to answer the question why team discipleship in other words discipleship could be one-to-one -one only or discipleship could be from uh be done in rows while you listen to someone speak uh from a pulpit or a lectern or discipleship can be done as a team and we're going to answer the question this morning why team discipleship i really love the mission statement we've we've uh tweaked it a little bit for our church and uh, to me it's so simple I like simple mission statements yeah me too and so we understand that our mission as a church is to create relational environments where disciples of Jesus can be made and you need to understand that uh, that responsibility primarily falls upon the elders of the church mm -hmm. the leaders of the church to make sure that that's happening within the church now we can't do it without the cooperation of the membership but at the same time it's the leadership's responsibility to, to set that. And so that's our mission. But why do we practice team discipleship? Why are we creating these relational, uh, re relational environments where team discipleship is practiced? How would you answer that? Yeah, this morning that's the question we're going to answer. And we're going to start in a passage of Scripture that hopefully is becoming familiar to you through this series. It really gives us this starting point for the bedrock of the strategy, the mission that Jesus used to make disciples. We're going to put this verse on the screen, Mark 3, 13 through 14. And this is what the Scripture says. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those he himself wanted. And they came to him. Then he appointed twelve that they might be with him. And that he might send them out to preach. That passage of scripture really shows us at the beginning of Jesus' ministry what he was committed to. What Jesus was committed to was team discipleship. We practice team discipleship because Jesus is our primary example. Jesus' disciple-making is characterized throughout the Gospels by team discipleship, specifically with the Twelve. There's a few one-to-one -one examples in the Gospels where Jesus had some one-to-one -one encounters, and those can be really meaningful, and Jesus had them. But if you compare how many one-to-one -one encounters he had with how many times he was with the Twelve, there's really no comparison there. It's characterized by team discipleship. Jesus would sometimes minister and preach to the multitudes. We would see him do that fairly regularly. But who was there while he was doing it? 
the 12. They were with him while he was engaging in ministry to the multitudes. And Jesus had a personal relationship with each one of those 12 disciples. And I love reading the gospel accounts because some of those personalities sometimes just jump off the page at you and you get to see his personal relationship with those disciples. But they shared those relationships primarily in the context of a relational environment where the 12 of them were living life together and sharing life together. Jesus' method of disciple making was recruit a small group, create a relational environment, and make disciples as a team. And that's what he modeled for the entire three years, approximately three years of his ministry. Because Jesus did that, we're committed to that. And so we make disciples in relational environments, and we do it as a team. So we could just end the message right now and leave. Are you ready? <laughs> we just answered the question, why do we practice team discipleship? Jesus did it, okay? And uh, we are followers of Christ. We understand that the definition of a disciple is found in Matthew four nineteen, and to be a, de a disciple of Jesus means he said, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. And so a disciple of Jesus is someone who follows Jesus. Yeah. And uh, so we should just say, okay, that's it. He did it. We're going to do it then just because he did it. But what we want to understand is why did he do it that way? Right. It's helpful right? to our faith to understand why did Jesus choose that way? Yeah, he could have chosen lots of different ways to go about making disciples. And the church today is choosing lots of different ways besides team discipleship to go about trying to make disciples. But he chose this way. So we want to look at why did Jesus do it this way? We want to understand it. And, and we want to direct you to another text. And this one is in Matthew uh, uh, chapter 16, verse 18. And I think we're going to have it up there on the PowerPoint. Yes, there we go. And it says this. And this was an encounter that Jesus had with his disciples. And, he, and this was sort of the conclusion. He said... And I also say to you that you are Peter. Peter was one of his uh, 12 disciples. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. We believe that in this particular verse, there is an explanation as to why Jesus practiced team discipleship. And we want to unpack that for you. Yeah, so we're going to jump through these. If you're taking notes, we're going to start into the, the first answer to this question. Why did Jesus practice team discipleship? And the first answer is to develop spiritual maturity. Look again at Matthew 16, 18 at the first part of that verse. It says, and I also say to you that you are Peter. He's directing his statement to one of the 12 in particular, in particularly, and it's the apostle Peter. Now, if you've read the gospel accounts, you've un you're undoubtedly familiar with Peter. He's all through the gospel accounts, and he's probably, of all the 12, the one that we get to watch have the most immaturity at the start of his discipleship relationship with Jesus, and then it grows into significant maturity to the point where Peter is the one leading the church after the ascension of Jesus in Jerusalem uh, when the church is being founded. And so Jesus had big plans for Peter's future. But first, Peter had a lot of spiritual growing to do. He needed some change to happen in his life. And what was the best way to take a man like Peter and develop him into a disciple of Jesus who looked like Jesus, who has spiritual maturity in his life. So what does spiritual maturity look like? We've got to answer that question. 
If, if Jesus' goal for Peter was for him to go from a spiritual infant to someone who was a spiritual adult, who was very adult, uh, very mature, what does it look like? Now, you know, we understand maturity. If I asked you what a physically mature man looks like, uh, you wouldn't describe a child to me if I asked you that question. You might say, well, the average man in America is about five foot, nine inches tall, and he, he weighs about 170 pounds, and uh, he can deadlift about 155 pounds. You just described me, except I'm sure I could deadlift more. Yeah, well, deadlift is like this anyway, <laughs> oh, sorry. right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> And so you might say that, well, that's a physically mature man. Or if I asked you the question, well, you know, what does a physically mature apple tree look like? Well, that may be more difficult for, for some of us to answer. But if you had the right information, you might say that, well, it has a trunk that's about six foot tall. And it, it reaches at least 20 feet in height. And it produces these apples. It produces this fruit. Mm -hmm. and, and, but if I asked you the question... What does a spiritually mature disciple of Jesus look like? You know, what would you say? How would you answer that question? And uh, could you answer that question if I came up to you personally right now and said, tell me what you think a spiritually mature disciple of Jesus looks like? Mm. How would you answer it? How would you answer it? Yeah, I mean, should I get the mic and we could test? <laughs> you know, uh, we won't do it, but... I wonder how many different answers we would get. But we get a lot. We would get a lot, and it's important for the fulfillment of the mission. If we're all trying to mature into the image of Christ, grow up spiritually to look like him, we need to be able to define this. Because some people might say, well, a spiritually mature disciple of Jesus is someone who really knows the Bible well. Right. Well, wait a minute. Didn't the Pharisees know the Bible well? Really well. And they weren't spiritually mature. Not at all. So that's not a good answer if that would be your answer. Right. Right. You know, knowledge is important, but it's not the definition of spiritual maturity. That's right. Or we might say somebody who's really given away all of their stuff to the poor, but wait a minute, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13, that's not necessarily a spiritually mature person. Right. So what is it? What's it look like? Well, we have to understand it, and we're going to turn to Jesus again for our answer. In the last moments of his life, when he was sharing that communion, that Lord's Supper that we just shared this morning with his disciples, he actually said something five times. And I'm just going to show you one of the places that he said this thing five times. Uh, and don't you know that those last words are significant? that they mean something, like the last things you're saying before his death, you know that he really is being intentional with those words. So what does Jesus say, and how does he say that the world will know who we are? John 13, 34 through 35. A new commandment I give you, Jesus says, that you love one another. As I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this will all know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus said these words right after he washed his disciples' feet and modeled for them what kind of love they were to have for one another. If I asked you what is a spiritually mature disciple of Jesus look like, you should say, well, first they love the other disciples of Jesus. They love the church. They love one another. Spiritually mature people are not characterized by being self-centered. 
They are characterized by being God and others-centered. We can all battle with self-centeredness at times. But what characterizes someone who has grown up into the image of Jesus and is looking like him is first and foremost their love. Their love for God and their love for others. Jesus said that all the law and prophets hang on those two commandments, that you would love God and love others. So how do you take someone like Peter who's very self-centered and very self-focused when he first meets Jesus. He believes in Jesus, but he's still very self-centered, self-focused, ignorant, you know, doesn't know a lot about the way Jesus wants him. How do you take someone like Peter, who's really rough around the edges, and you help him mature into this disciple that loves the way that Jesus loved? That's the question. That's the question. Well, Jesus knew that the best way to do that was to place Peter and an environment where team discipleship was being practiced. In other words, Peter wasn't going to learn to love just by being in a one-to-one relationship with Jesus. Yeah. That would have been great. He'd had Jesus all to himself when he had him, but that wasn't going to happen. And he wasn't going to learn just by hearing the lectures and teachings that Jesus gave to the multitudes. Right. In order for him to really develop spiritual maturity, which we understand, according to the command of Jesus, is love... Mm-hmm then he needed to be involved in a team. The disciples of Jesus learned what love looked like by being with Jesus, but also by being with one another. And we have all of these examples where Peter learned what love looked like by being with Jesus and being with the other disciples. For example, Peter learned that he needed the other disciples to accomplish great things by being with them when Jesus fed the 5,000. And so he understood that, man, we need each other in order to accomplish what Jesus wants us to do by being a part of that team. He would have never learned that just in one-to-one discipleship. No. Peter learned to put others before himself by being with James and John when he saw them put themselves first. Didn't that test And then Jesus instructed them that that's not the goal that's not the aim if you want to be great in my kingdom you got to be servant of all Peter wouldn't have learned that if he wasn't a part of that team of disciples Peter learned the importance of serving one another by being with the other disciples when Jesus at the last supper he washed all of their feet mm-hmm. and he objected to it you remember he yeah. objected to it but he learned a lesson there by being with everyone else and practicing mm-hmm. team discipleship And then Peter learned to forgive one another by being with the other disciples after he denied that he knew Jesus three times. And, and, you know, Jesus corrected him right there in the presence of all the other disciples. And he learned about forgiveness. And that love means to forgive through that particular experience that he had with all those disciples. Do you see how all these examples of what happened to Peter because he was in team discipleship, it it tested him, it created friction, there were challenges. You can't grow in love in a cushy environment. You can't grow in love in isolation. You have to be tested by relationship. I mean, so many people, they would say, I'm spiritually mature, I don't have any of these problems. And then you look at their life and, well, of course you don't because you spend all of your time away from people who would test you to see if you have those problems or not. As soon as you get in those close-knit relationships with other people, 
whatever's really inside you is going to start to come out. So there's no other way to become spiritually mature and to grow in love than by practicing team discipleship with other people, other disciples of Jesus. And it's true in our small groups. It's true in all of them. This is the place where we get together as a team. And as those relationships grow, we get tested and challenged so that love can grow. But it's not just limited to our small groups. No, the, the, the small groups are important because they give us an opportunity to engage with people that we ordinarily probably wouldn't choose to engage with. Yeah. We have this natural tendency just to choose to engage with people that we like. You know... Well, if I'm going to learn to grow in love, I need to engage with some people I really don't prefer. Yeah. And that's what happens in small group. Yeah. Is that you're put in this environment that's relational with people that you don't necessarily have a lot in common with Mm -hmm. other than the fact that you know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. And so you learn how to love every race of people. You Mm -hmm. learn how to love every status of people. You learn how to love every personality, and I might say every personality disorder in people. Because if you're in group, you're going to be one of many people that has some form of personality disorder, and God wants to use you to teach everyone else in the group how to love you and people like you. Because this is what the world is made of. The world is made of broken people. Mm-hmm. And, and so, yeah, it'd be easier just to sit up in our homes and come to church once a week and not engage with people. But we're not going to grow in love that way completely. No, we But can't. you are going to grow love. And some, it depends on your relationship. Mm-hmm. For example, what? Marriage. Yeah, marriage would be a great example of this. When you come together, keeping the covenant is number one in marriage. You've made a covenant with God. You've made a covenant with one another. And you know, sometimes you get into a marriage relationship and you go, whoo, there's a lot more challenges here than I thought there was going to be. You thought you liked that person until you were married to him. I married him because we got along so well and the dates were great. And now I live with them every day. And whoo, there's some challenges I didn't anticipate here that I'm having to work through. God uses marriage for believers God uses marriage to refine us, to grow us in love. Don't you know, husbands, that that's what God expects of you and desires from you? That you would love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her? You've got to grow in spiritual maturity to do that. And wives, to love your husbands, to respect your husbands, to submit to their leadership when, oh, it's so difficult at times. What a, what a hard, hard job. And to grow in love. For God, to grow in love for him, even when he lets you down, even when he disappoints you, or isn't the leader that God wants him to be. This marriage relationship tests relationships, and guess what? If you cooperate with God, it produces in you love. Exactly. You grow in spiritual maturity. So we get that in group. We get that in marriage. There would be another example. Well, if you're a child and you're living in a home with parents that are difficult, anybody want to say it? Don't say amen. But if you are... (laughs) I was one of them, and I didn't realize until I became a Christian that God wanted to use this difficult relationship with my father Mm -hmm. to teach me how to love people like him. And when I finally embraced that and said, yes, God, I get it. You want me to learn how to love him, and I haven't loved him the way you want me to love him, and you want me to learn how to love him. He was an alcoholic, Mm -hmm. and by learning to love him, it, it put me on a course where I could grow up in love and love other people that were like my father. Yeah. And so that's what, doesn't Jesus love every one of us the way that we are? Yeah. And so 
That's the way we grow in our families. We have these difficult relationships, whether it's with parents or whether it's with a child or whether it's with a sibling. And God uses that to be like sandpaper that God is using to help us become purified in our love uh, for others. Yeah, so this can happen in the family. It should happen in the family. But the beauty of Jesus' strategy of disciple-making is that they complement each other. You're at home and you're struggling and you get, you know, appropriately and, and in the right way, you get transparent in group about the struggles that you're having, uh, you know, resolving conflict biblically, but doing that as, as transparently as possible. And you talk about that and God uses those disciples. And there's a more mature disciple in group and you look at them and you go, whew, that seems like too lofty a standard. I don't feel, and God challenges you and says, hey, that's where I'm leading you. That's where you're headed. And even beyond that, because I'm leading you to become like me. And then you get with somebody who's really immature and you go, woo, this is really difficult. And God says, guess what? My spirit's in them and I have something I want to teach you through them. And he humbles you by reminding you that the least and the lowest who are in Christ have his spirit. And then he wants to teach you through them. And you go, oh God, I'm so proud. Humble my heart. I want to learn from you however you want to teach me. It, sh it sharpens us. It renews us. It grows us up into the image of Christ because love is first and foremost what defines spiritual maturity. And you cannot grow in love in isolation. You cannot do it. And it doesn't mean that if someone is, you know, difficult to love and they're creating an offense for you that you should just always sit back and take a beating without doing anything. No. The Bible even prescribes that part of love is learning how to confront people and practice biblical conflict resolution. Absolutely. And you know what? What I find in the church is that we're not very good at it. That's a, that's a part of spiritual maturity where we don't know how to confront people, even mm -hmm. our own family members, with things that are creating a, a, an offense to us or things that we're concerned about. And as a result, we end up widening the conflict. Yes. We end up broadening the offense because we don't know how to do it in a Jesus way. By the way, this, this Wednesday at Together Seniors, uh -huh. we're going to be talking about this very subject. Hey, yeah. So we're going to learn more about how to do that this Wednesday in our meeting. We've got to be able to fight for relationship with those people in our life we love. And when you avoid conflict, you're unloving. And when you respond the wrong way to conflict, you're unloving. And God wants to use relationship to help you learn how to be loving, even in the middle of conflict. So this is for, first and foremost. This is the primary point we want to make this morning for you to walk away with this belief. Jesus practiced team discipleship because he wanted his disciples to grow up in spiritual maturity. And it wasn't going to be possible in isolation. And it wasn't going to be possible uh, nearly to the extent that it was in team discipleship if they just met with him one-to-one. -one. It was going to have to be as a team that they would work on relationships and growing in love together. So that's first and foremost. But we have another reason. Jesus practiced team discipleship. Yeah, Jesus practiced team discipleship to give every disciple a significant role to play in the discipleship growth and process for themselves and for others. In Matthew 16, 18, notice, come back to that text, after he said, and I also say to you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Hmm. I mean, Peter had to be like, whoa! I mean, Jesus just said that, you know? <laughs> he said my name first, uh -huh. and then he said, and upon this rock I will build my church. And he knew what his name meant. Mm -hmm. You know, we understand that 
The rock is the rock of revelation of Jesus Christ. But at the same time, for him to include Peter in this admonition and then say that the gates of hell won't prevail against it, it must have went, wow, mm -hmm. I've got a significant role to play here. And that was important to Peter. You know, Jesus went on to compare, well, in fact, in this passage, mm -hmm. I will build my church, means that Jesus compared his church to a building that he was constructing. But he wanted every disciple, not just Peter, he wanted every disciple to know that they were an important part of the construction of this building called his church. Now, Peter may not have understood this when he got this admonition from Jesus. He may have just thought, yeah, I'm better than everybody else. Uh -huh. I don't know what he thought. Uh -huh. But later on, we know he understood this because he said he understood it, that every single member of the body of Christ has a place a role to play. In fact, Peter would call every member of the body of Christ the living stone in the construction of the church of Jesus Christ. Yeah, we can read the words of the Apostle Peter in maturity once he had grown in 1 Peter 2, 4 through 5. Peter said, coming to him as to a living stone, rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious, you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus used another analogy besides the construction of a building to show every member, uh, every believer that we are import, play an important role in the construction of the building. Mm -hmm. He used his body. He called his church the body of Christ on earth. And Paul began to talk about the body of Christ on earth, and he, he started talking about the members of the body, and he used specifically he, he used specifically the feet and the hands, he used specifically the eyes and the ears, and he talked about how each person in the body of Christ is, is an important member of his body and has this critical role to play in the body of Christ. You know, so the Bible's teachings that the church is Jesus' building and that the church is Jesus' body makes every person in the church indispensable to the mission of Jesus, which is to create relational environments where disciples can be made. So Jesus practiced team discipleship because on a team, every single team member, every single disciple has an opportunity to function as a living stone or a member of his body. If you didn't have team discipleship, you're not going to have an opportunity to function no. as a living stone, to function as a member of the body. Only a few people can function that way. It's one of the reasons why the teaching of spiritual gifts has really suffered in the Church of America. Because if you abandon Jesus' strategy of team discipleship and you start thinking the places to get involved are to be an usher or to welcome at a door or to work in children's ministry or to clean up after people after they gather, there's just not a lot of places to exercise those gifts. No, that's but, about 10, 15% of the members. Right. But when the Holy Spirit came, he indwelt the members of the body of Christ. And at Pentecost, that happened to those believers. And the scripture says that they met daily at the temple, but they, they also broke into small groups and they met together in homes, in those small groups. Why? Because the disciples, the, now the, these apostles who were leading the church, they were the ones who had been with Jesus and they knew Jesus' strategy. 
And they knew that his strategy needed to continue and that it couldn't happen just by gathering as a large group. So they met in these homes where teen discipleship could be practiced, where every person in the body of Christ who's filled with the Spirit of God had a place to exercise those gifts and be a part of making disciples as a team. And so it's essential when you believe what Jesus taught that the, every member of the body is an indispensable member of the body, that every single living stone is indispensable in the construction of God's building, his temple, then you must believe that we have to follow the example of Jesus and give every person in the body of Christ a place to get out of the seats and in the game and to play in team discipleship. We practice team discipleship because we believe that every single one of you is essential to the mission of Jesus. We believe that. Your elders believe that. We believe it with all of our hearts. Here's what I would say to you this morning. You are more capable than you think you are. You are stronger than you think you are. You have more power in the Spirit than you realize. You are more gifted by the Spirit than you know. You have what it takes to do great things for God when you trust God and you follow Him. His Holy Spirit is in you, and Jesus modeled what you're supposed to do as the living stones, as the members of the body of Christ. If you'll trust him and do it, God's going to do great things through your life, and your life is going to make a significant difference in this world and for all of eternity for Christ. If we'll just surrender and say, God, will do this your way. We trust you, Jesus. We will be the team you called us to be. And, and here's the thing, church. If you will do that and believe it, you'll experience his power and you will win. Well, I'm fired up. I'm ready to go do it. Are you? But there's one more reason that Jesus practiced te team discipleship. And it, it, it's very important that we really, really are passionate about this. Jesus practiced team discipleship because he wanted his church to win. Yeah. Notice it says in the verse, in verse 16 and 18, And I also say unto you that you are Peter on this rock, I'll build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against you. That means we win. Yeah. That's what it means. If we will do what Jesus told us to do, we're going to win. The gates of hell will not prevail against us. In Matthew 4, 19, Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Yeah. He wanted the disciples of Jesus to win by reproducing other disciples. That's the only way it was going to carry on. Yeah, this had to be bigger than just that group of 12. And in order for it to be bigger, it had to be reproducible so that they could become disciples who make disciples. For the disciples of Jesus to reproduce, Jesus had to use a reproducible process that they could learn and that they could follow. That reproducible process is team discipleship. Team discipleship is the only way for the church to reproduce by training new leaders and by new teams branching and forming new small groups where a relational environment is made and those disciples work together. And you do it again, and you do it again, and you do it again, and you make disciples to the ends of the earth. And this is the problem. Jesus gave us that plan. And the church has divorced the method of Jesus from the message of Jesus and expected to get the same results as Jesus, and it just won't work. Yeah, if you know anything about church history, you know that there are certain regions in our world that used to be heavenly uh, populated by Christians because yeah. the church had exploded and grown. Yeah. And now it's not there anymore. 
In fact, it's been overrun by other uh, religious faiths that are more populated uh, than, than Christians are. In fact, in those areas that one time were, were considered you know, Christian areas of, of the world, uh, they're pagan again. Mm-hmm. And so what's happened? Well, what's happened is that the church has this tendency to drift away from the primary method that Jesus used to make disciples, which is team discipleship. We drift away from it. We choose that which is easier. And, and, and to this day, you can travel all over the world and you can find these incredible buildings, these empty Ephesus, you know, yeah. that have been built at one time where hundreds and thousands of Christians used to gather for worship. Now they're empty. Yeah. What happened? Yeah. They became dependent upon that facility. They became dependent upon that building. And now it stands as this great empty edifice that we go, wow, wasn't that incredible? You know, yeah. that was amazing. But it's empty. It's empty. Because the church of Jesus Christ has forsaken the primary method of Jesus to make disciples. And we need to recover it. Yeah. We're not reinventing something new. We're recovering something old. Yeah. Yeah, Jesus has shown us the way to do it, and we will practice team discipleship. Uh, Our aim is not to build new buildings. That's not our aim. It's to build up disciples of Jesus. We are not focused on developing a staff team. We're focused on making disciples who can make disciples. And when building uh, a new building or building a staff team can serve the purpose of creating relational environments where disciples of Jesus are made, then we'll gladly implement those tools in order to fulfill that. But we're going to let that serve that purpose and not the other way around. Exactly. We're not going to allow us to serve the building. We're not going to allow us to serve the staff. The staff in the building will serve the purpose of making disciples who make disciples to the ends of the earth. So we believe this. We believe that when Jesus says that he will build his church and his church will win, we believe that what he's saying is true. But we believe we have a part to do. We, our part is to devote ourselves to the mission of Jesus, to make disciples. And that mission, once again, is to create relational environments where disciples of Jesus will be made. We believe that if we will devote ourselves to that, we're going to win. Yeah. So we've asked the question, why team discipleship? And we answered it really quickly because Jesus practiced team <laughs> discipleship. And then we asked the question, why did Jesus practice team discipleship? And from Matthew 16, 18, we've seen Jesus practiced team discipleship to develop spiritually mature disciples who get in those relationships and they grow in love. He practiced team discipleship to give every disciple a significant role to play. You're more capable than you think. You have more power than you think. Do it Jesus' way. And he practiced team discipleship so that we would win. And he promises the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. The challenge for us in that promise is this. Are we being his church? If we will be his church and do things his way, his promise is that we will win. You know, as I think about our response to this message, uh, I thought about this example that I've personally experienced in in the last three years. Uh, Three years ago, I began working with uh, my close friend, Bob Hoffman, uh, who is the men's basketball coach at UCO in, in Edmond. And that season three years ago was Coach Hoffman's first season uh, as the men's basketball coach. He came from Mercer University in Georgia. 
And so I joined him on his team, on his staff, during that first season. And in that first season, you know, the preseasons and Reagans came out, and our team was picked last in our conference. Mm. There's 16 teams in our conference. And our conference is the most powerful conference in Division II basketball. Uh, he said, well, how can you say that? A member of our conference has won the national championship three, three years in a row, hmm. uh, three seasons in a row. And so it's a very powerful conference. And so we were picked last. Well, we didn't finish last. We finished eighth that first year. And then the second year, uh, we, were, we were picked higher. Uh, and, and we ended up... Uh, we ended up finishing uh, fifth. And then last year in the third season, uh, we won the regular season conference championship. We went from being picked last just three years ago to winning the conference championship. In fact, this Thursday night at uh, UCL football game in Edmond, they're going to do this ring presentation. And I got a ring. I got a ring hey, that I can bring. And that's awesome. I'll never wear it because it's so huge. <laughs> uh, as a result of winning that championship, you say, well, how in the world did that happen? How do you go from being last, picked last, to winning in just three short, short seasons? Well, the short answer to that is that Bob Hoffman's a great coach. Mm-hmm. I mean, he, he's got well over 600 wins in his collegiate coaching career. So he knows how to win. Mm-hmm. He's a great coach. And when you combine great coaching with coachable players, <laughs> you're, you're going to have a good chance of winning. Yeah. Well, let me tell you, church, we've got the best coach there is when it comes to discipleship. Yeah, we do. And his name is Jesus. Yeah. We, the church, just need to become coachable players. Yep. Instead of thinking we got a better idea than what the coach has, we just need to align ourselves with him, and I guarantee you, we will win. Yes, we will. Yeah, so let's win. Let's be the winning team by being coachable players and trusting God in this process called team discipleship. And, you know, you're indispensable in that. You, there is no substitute for your part. You either play your part or you don't, and we suffer when you don't play your part. So the challenge to you this morning is get out of the seats and get into the game. Figure out how to be in close relationship with other disciples of Jesus in team discipleship so that God can accomplish his purposes in you and through us, and we will be his church, his team that wins. In order for you to join the team, first you have to be a disciple of Jesus. You can't join the winning team and not be a disciple of him. And in order for you to be a disciple of Jesus, you have to reach that point in your life where you understand that your sin problem has broken your relationship with Mm -hmm. God beyond repair. And that there is nothing you can do to resolve that sin problem on your own. But that what Jesus did through his work on the cross is enough to satisfy God's justice and God's wrath towards sin. So that if you'll put your trust in Jesus in the eyes of God, he will have grace on you and see when he looks at you, his son, and he will see that your sins are forgiven in Jesus. Not by your works, but by grace through faith. And he'll redeem you from a life of sin. And when you become his disciple and he saves you from your sin, he puts his Holy Spirit inside of you. And now you can get to work. Now you can be part of the team. You become one of those indispensable members of the body of Christ immediately, 
even at that infancy in your walk with Christ, you immediately become a valuable part of the team that we all need in order for God's mission to be accomplished and fulfilled in us. Have you made that decision? Have you trusted Jesus as Lord? Have you trusted Jesus to forgive all your sins and to cover them all through his blood? If you haven't made that decision, that's your first step. And we want to encourage you to make that decision today before you leave. In fact, I'm going to ask if Pastor Hugh wouldn't mind standing in the back at one of those tables for us. And I want you to have an opportunity to nail that down because your heart might be being stirred right now that you say, I got to get involved in team discipleship. Well, if you haven't trusted Jesus, that's your first step. That's where you go to join the team. And so don't leave here today. We, w- we don't want anyone to leave this place today without being sure that they have a personal relationship with Jesus because of what he's done for them. So I encourage you really at any time now in this invitation and as we close in singing, you can have the opportunity to go back there and talk to Pastor Hugh and nail that down once and for all. Now, once you know you're part of the team because you're a disciple of Jesus, that's when the journey really begins. That's when the fun starts of developing a culture, a winning culture. Winning teams have winning culture. We have a winning coach, and he's shown us how to have a winning culture, and he wants us to share that winning culture. And I want to encourage you, trust God by trusting those spiritual leaders that God has placed over your life. And get out of the seat and in the, in the game by joining a small group. And when you go to that small group, engage in the purpose of that group. Some of you are great teachers. It's not the place. It's the place to form relationships and grow in love. And to hear the Holy Spirit through every member, not just one. We're not looking for some superstar in group who has all the answers. We're working as a team to make disciples. And if you think you're that superstar that has all the answers, I just want to assure you right now that your heart is filled with pride. Because God reminds me every single week when he talks to me through one of those people who's new in their walk with Christ and is growing in this process and he pricks my heart and he shows me an area where I'm not being like him and he reminds me again, there are no superstars except King Jesus in the church. He is the only one who is the superstar in his church. So get out of the seat, get into the game and trust, grow in faith and trust God's Holy Spirit is in that person in my group and that person in my group and that person, regardless of where they're at, and shut your mouth and listen to the Holy Spirit and trust Him to talk to you through those people. And then when His Spirit prompts you, instead of going on your soapbox, ask Him, why are you saying this to me? And use an I statement. Get humble about it and say, you know what God's saying to me? And be transparent and bring it into the light Oh, it's going to challenge you. Because you're going to go, can I really trust these people with this kind of information? That's going to challenge you. And when someone violates that trust, it's going to sharpen you because you have to grow in love. Because, oh, that hurt a little bit because relationships hurt sometimes. And you trust again. And you resolve conflict biblically instead of going one way, running away or doing something, you know, that you would regret. And you grow in love. And you grow in love. And you grow in love and, and you take that practice back to your family and you take that practice back to your workplace and to your friends and you learn how to grow in love and all of a sudden your life is looking more like Jesus because his life was defined by love. So go and practice it in your group. Get out of the seats and get in the game. We need you. We can't do it without you.
We have to have your help because the mission of Jesus depends on every person in the body of Christ doing their part. So trust the Lord in that. And then I want to invite you before we close here, you know, there's no substitute for living it out in relationship. Discipleship's better caught than taught. But our elders work together and our coaches of our small groups work together every year. And we do this one day experience called 400. And when we do 400, it's it's our most in-depth discipleship and relationship training. And it's very hands-on. Don't expect there to be a superstar who lectures you the whole uh, Saturday while you're there. It's very hands-on, interactive, discussion-oriented, where we get disciples of Jesus together, and we work on relationship skills and discipleship skills. And I want to encourage you, if you haven't registered for that yet, you can scan this QR code. You can go to the Right Now announcement page and register. It's really easy to get done. If you can't figure it out through technology, you can just let Denna know, and she's keeping track of registrations for us. But get registered for that and come. What it's going to do is it's going to make a deposit in our church culture that once that deposit's made, can then go and be invested into all of our groups. And so I want to encourage you, come be part of that day, 400, it's September 24th on that Saturday, and develop and sharpen those skills, and then take them back to your small group. Now, one thing I need to say about 400 is it's all written from the perspective that you already are familiar with team discipleship in a small group. So if you're not currently in a small group, or if you haven't experienced team discipleship in a small group, I want to encourage you, attend at least one small group meeting before you come to 400. It's going to make a big difference uh, at that time where we gather for 400. Let's be the church. Let's get out of the seats and into the game. Let's join the winning team and trust our head coach. And let's work together to form a culture where we create relational environments and disciples of Jesus are made. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me this morning? I'm going to close us in prayer. And Pastor Seth is going to lead us in a song. And as we sing, or right now, if the Lord has put on your heart, I need a nail down to make sure that I am on the team, that I am a disciple of Jesus. Pastor Hugh is right there in the back. Don't miss this opportunity to talk to him before you go. Let's pray. Would you bow with me? And you go right now if you want to go talk to Pastor Hugh. Thank you, God, for this time. Thank you for your church, your power in them. That together we are being built up as living stones, as a, as a place of spiritual worship, pleasing to you, God. Thank you that your Holy Spirit abides in us. Who would we be apart from your Holy Spirit in us? Not your church, not your team, not the hot spot of your presence on the earth. We wouldn't be capable, but we are capable because you are in us and we are in you. We wouldn't be strong, but we are strong because of who you are in us. Thank you that making disciples is not just something that we do, it's who we are, because it's who you are, and we are in you. God, we pray that your church would rise up at Together Church, that we would accomplish this mission of creating relational environments where disciples of Jesus are made, and that as we work to accomplish that mission, that you would fulfill the vision that you've given our church, that we would develop people who radically impact the whole world for Jesus Christ. God, that's bigger than us. It's beyond our scope, but it's not beyond your scope. It's not bigger than you are. So God, we pray that you would do it, and we just say again, God, we will be your people. 
We will be your church. Rise up in us, O oh God, and use us as your church and your body to carry out your mission, we pray in Jesus' name. And God's people said, amen. amen. Let's sing as we close.